Good morning. Okay, enough of all this love and kindness stuff. Sit down. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, Rob. Let's all join our hearts together in prayer, if we could, please. Father God, what a privilege it is to come before you in prayer. What a glorious day you have given us again. And we just come together, gather together in your name to glorify you. God, we know that there's heavy burdens out there. There's people sitting here today that are heavily burdened in, in their physical health and even in their spiritual lives. But God, we are so grateful for your hope and your love and your gracious grace to us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our great and glorious Father. Amen. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, Lynn Coick, staff of Denver Seminary in 2018, as the very first female provost and academic dean of Denver, of Denver Seminary, as well as a professor of New Testament. Before coming to Denver, Lynn taught at Wheaton College in graduate school since the year 2000, where she was professor of the New Testament, as well as filling a number of other key roles in the staff at Wheaton. Before her stint in Illinois, she taught at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, Lynn and her husband, Jim, served for a number of years in Nairobi, Kenya, ministering through music and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lynn earned her Ph.D. in New Testament and Christian origins from the University of Pennsylvania, and she has published more books and more articles than I really have time to tell you about. She's given lectures all over the world still being a wife, a mother, and a teacher. Denver, Denver Seminary is just incredibly honored to have her on staff, and we are incredibly honored to have her with us today, both Lynn and her husband, Jim. So without further ado, may I introduce to you Dr. Lynn Coick, my colleague and my friend. <laughs> Well, nothing like getting an introduction that you can't possibly live up to. Thank you, Judy. <laughs> First met Judy, uh, I don't know, a couple, several years ago. So we've worked on a couple of uh, book projects uh, together. So it's been delightful. Well, I'm thrilled to be here uh, this morning and enjoying worship with you all. Um, this morning, we're going to look at two stories about anointing. The first one will be in 1 Samuel 16, and then we'll switch to the New Testament and we'll look at the anointing by Mary of Bethany, she anoints Jesus. As we look at these two stories, we want to pay attention to the social conventions that were operating uh, both in ancient Israel and then in New Testament times, and we're going to see how some of those social conventions were challenged by God's viewpoint 
And then we'll ask, how about our own social conventions today? How are they shaping and potentially misshaping our lives as believers? And so I'd like to uh, turn first to First uh, Samuel, and I'll actually start the story a little bit earlier in First Samuel 9. This is where we meet Saul, who is instructed by his father to go find some donkeys that had wandered away. And the story goes on how Saul uh, ended up not ever finding the donkeys. The donkeys found their way home, but... Um, But in fact, he found Samuel, or Samuel found Saul, and anointed Saul king of Israel. As the story unfolds, we get to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, and we discover that Saul made a critical error. Rather than wait for Samuel to do the sacrifice, Saul jumped ahead, disobeyed God, and perform the sacrifice on his own. And that displeased God, and so he indicated to Samuel that Saul would not remain the chief king and his family down through the generations, but rather God would seek a man after his own heart. And so we pick up the story then in 1 Samuel 16, where God commands Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. So Samuel, in obedience, he uh, travels to Bethlehem, and when he arrives, the elders of that town are very worried. Actually, Samuel is worried, too, because when God told him to anoint another as king, well, Saul, the king, was still alive, and so from one uh, perspective, Samuel was about to commit treason. But to the elders' question, have you come in peace? Samuel replies, yes, I have come in peace. And and that was true, Um, but he was also going to create a new king. And that could result in war. Well, Samuel sees Jesse, and he asks Jesse if he could see his sons. And so Jesse follows the conventions of the day, which privilege the firstborn son, in this case, Eliab. The oldest was seen as being closest to the father and by extension to the grandfather and so could carry on the family traditions and the the wisdom of the family. The other thing is Eliab was tall. Actually, the scripture also says that Saul was quite tall. It's a feature both in ancient Israel and also in the New Testament times that leaders um, were often tall. Uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he tells uh, some stories of several different Messiah pretenders that lived in the first century, and in every case, they were tall. I think it was a useful quality for hand-to-hand combat to have that uh, advantage over uh, someone you're fighting. And I think they, the ancients saw a, a, a tall man, a vigorous man, likely then was expected to have internal fortitude. Well, Samuel sees Eliab, tall, the firstborn. Bingo, bring out the oil. This is the one I'm to anoint, right? And God says no. 
God does not look at the outer appearance. God looks at the heart. And so Samuel asks Jesse if he had any other sons. And seven of Jesse's sons each go before Samuel, and none of them receive the green light. So then Samuel says to Jesse, are, are there any other sons? And Jesse replies, oh yeah, there's one more, the youngest. He's out tending sheep. No name. He, he doesn't even give him his name. He's just out in the fields. So unimportant was this youngest son, he didn't even warrant an invitation to the feast. But Samuel remains faithful to what he knows God has. And so he says, we're going to hold dinner until this youngest son comes. When David appears, then God says to Samuel, arise and anoint this one, for he is good. You can see this also in Psalm 89, where God says, I made a lad ruler in preference to a warrior. I exalted a youth above a hero. I found David my servant, and with my holy oil I anointed him. Now, the point about appearance that I'd like to make is not that God wants just ugly and socially awkward people on his team. It's not the point uh, that's, that Scripture is making here. In fact, when David appears, uh, the Scripture tells us he looked healthy. He was handsome. It, the point is that society valued height. But these things were not important to God. God looks at the heart. God wants obedience. He wants a servant who will follow his master. When we look to the Gospels, turn to the New Testament, the Gospels continue the same theme. They challenge social constructions of appearance. And I think we see this in the anointing um, that is done by Mary of Bethany. We find this story both in the Gospel of John and also in Matthew and Mark. This is another story of tension. There is tension in this story, just like what we saw in the anointing of David. We also will see that social conventions are challenged. So we take a look, we pick up the story on Palm Sunday, and Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. He's hailed as Messiah, son of David. The mood is hopeful, but there's also an undercurrent of anxiety. And Mark tells us that as Jesus was leading the way from Galilee up to Jerusalem, the disciples were both astonished and afraid. So three times Jesus explains to them, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. The response to this awful news? The disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they seem to just latch on only to that last phrase, that three days later he will rise. And then they ask or insist that they be given the seats of highest honor in Jesus' coming kingdom. 
to Jesus' serious question about whether they have the strength to suffer with him, to drink the cup that he will drink, to undergo the baptism that awaits him, they answer assuredly, yeah, we can. To say that they were overconfident, I think, is an understatement. And what do the other disciples do? Are they concerned about Jesus' upcoming suffering? No, they're mad at James and John for jumping ahead in the line and trying to get the best seats. Jesus brings the conversation round again. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, after Jesus' triumphal entry into the city, rather than spend the night in Jerusalem, Jesus heads to Bethany which is a small village about two miles outside of Jerusalem um, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. The Gospel of John tells us about a dinner celebration that was held there in Jesus' honor. He's honored by Mary, Martha, and their brother, brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead very recently. And at this meal, Mary anoints Jesus. John tells us that Mary took... Uh, pint of pure nard, which is an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus's feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with this wonderful fragrance. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray Jesus, Judas objected. Why isn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Well, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, we find the same story. In Mark 14, 1 through 11, it says in part, while he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar very expensive, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. You will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary's actions are understood in two different ways by those present at the meal. Some of the disciples are upset at what they judge to be wasteful, and they rebuke her. John tells us specifically Judas Iscariot was upset. The disciples see Mary's actions as perhaps an overly extravagant act of hospitality, too expensive to shower on a guest, even a guest of honor. They're angry with Mary, so they publicly shame her by calling her out as having bad priorities. Did she care for the poor? Was she showing off the fact that she had such expensive perfume? Was she calling attention to herself 
a social crime of which women are often charged. She doesn't explain herself. She doesn't defend herself. And if there were any disciples at the meal who were pleased at her generous outpouring of love, they kept it to themselves. But Jesus speaks, and he does not keep silent. Jesus responds with praise and blessing for her and a sharp rebuke to the disciples. Jesus explains, Mary gets it. She understands that this week holds for Jesus horrific pain. He will be beaten, scorned, mocked, killed. He has said so on several occasions, and Mary believes him. And so she anoints him, her Messiah, her King, and at the same time prepares his body for burial. On the one hand, Mary's actions are similar to Samuel's actions. In anointing Jesus, Mary sees him as King, coming to lead God's people. She affirms what the crowd did for Jesus in his triumphal entry. They proclaimed him as one who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. But on the other hand, her actions point to Jesus' death. Jesus says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me. Mary, uh, Mary's anointing not only calls to mind the anointing of Israel's kings, but also preparation for Jesus' burial. But this is part of his kingship. This is what brings in his kingdom. And that's what most of the other disciples missed or ignored or rejected. Earlier in the story, we read Peter, who declares with, I would say, even self-important bluster, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. And Thomas does the same. But Mary of Bethany knows that this will be a gruesome death. This is not a video game that keeps violence at a distance. And it's not going to be a heroic display of self-control on Jesus' part. The battle of good and evil will be played out on Jesus' body, the feet of whom she has lovingly anointed and wiped clean. You know, Mary has already bathed and anointed her brother Lazarus. She knows what death is. And so Mary's anointing demonstrates her commitment to her Savior, even as Samuel's anointing in Bethlehem of the youngest son of Jesse testifies to his trust in God's plan. So what about appearances? We've looked at the social conventions that closed the eyes of David's brothers and his father and initially blurred Samuel's vision. And we've seen the social convention that made it permissible to dismiss a woman's testimony, to question and even mock her act of devotion. I wonder how I would have reacted as a disciple in Mary and Martha's home, as Mary took all of her money that was in that jar, of, that was represented by that jar of nard, and seemingly squandered it in a single gesture of devotion. So how many of us, all of us, myself in the mix, might have been shocked that Mary 
didn't speak out for the poor here. What does appearance, or we might say today using our language of self-identity, what are we taught or told about self-identity from our wider culture? And what does it mean to follow Christ today? One way to address this self-identity question is to look at the issue of poverty that we find raised in our text. Then and now, the world's ways we know to be arbitrary and prejudice and unjust and downright harmful. We know also that Jesus himself cared for the needy, the hungry. He reached out to those who were regularly mistreated and denied justice. So in our story, the disciples, when they speak about the needs of the poor, make sense. So why were they so off base? I think uh, one possibility is that when we challenge injustice, it can become domesticated when the self becomes at the center. This is where the world sneaks back in and tells you your identity, what you are. In our Bible text, the what you are include you're the firstborn, you're tall, you're due honor because of social position or wealth, you're due honor because you give alms. Well, we live in an age today that tells us to embrace the self But that can mean embracing the power-hungry wisdom of this world. We do live in a time that rightly speaks out against social injustice, rightly speaks out against the sins of the past. But I wonder if at times we don't take enough care to avoid assuming a morally superior posture, what we might call today virtue signaling. We don't yet know the judgment of history against us and our blind spots. At one level, the identity question is never mastered because we never master ourself, our flesh. In his letter to a campus activist, A scholar, associate professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University writes this. The language of identity tells us what we are. But he continues, rebellion at its truest, its most beautiful, is motivated by a struggle to answer the question, who am I? And Dr. Lloyd uh, adds, I've learned to look beyond myself the first and most important rebellion of all, which is the one against a false self-love. And so I think what our scripture invites us today to do is to not seek the comfortable label, what am I? That's what the world holds out. Instead, our social action and our godly obedience should move in the direction of answering the question, Who am I? And this question, trying to answer this question, who am I, 
think we need to recognize two components. The city that helps us answer that question, and then the personal. I'm going to zero in on the personal in a moment, but I want us to reflect on the reality that we are also members of a body, Christ's body, the church. So I want to underline the importance of the body, and I'll, I'll do it in, um, by sharing with you a, a story. I was at a small conference a couple of years ago in the winter of 2017. It was a group of Jews and Christians gathering together. I had known many of these people for several years. And my friend Marcy, who lived in New York City, was telling me that uh, the previous she participated in the Women's March that was there. And she talked about how everyone was chatting with everyone else. They were learning each other's stories. People, she said, marched for different reasons. But we all took strength from each other. Then we went back to our apartments and thought about how we could do our part better and with more energy. And when Marcy finished telling me the story, I thought, wow, the church should be like that. We should be a source of strength for each other. Now, we might not agree on all things. We might be doing different things. But as we come together and as we share stories, we encourage each other and we give each other strength. Paul talks about the church as the body, Christ's body, Uh, extensively in the letter to the Ephesians. And in one place, in chapter 5 in Ephesians, he likens Christ and the church with the analogy of marriage, the uh, oneness and unity of marriage between a husband and wife and the unity between Christ and his church. This is a picture of Jim and I, low these many years ago on our wedding day. Paul says that we are Christ's body joined to him, and that's a profound mystery. So that's the corporate dimension of identity. But there's also a personal dimension of identity. Through the prophet Samuel and the acts of Mary, Jesus Christ reminds us, it's not what you are, but who you are or even more importantly, whose you are. Picture of Caravaggio, poignant. I think it expresses well this mystery that Paul talks about to the Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think that's what we see in Mary's story. What the other disciples missed in their eagerness to be the one who helped the poor or who got to sit at Jesus' right or left hand in the kingdom, what they missed is love. Mary stayed in the moment with Jesus. She heard him speak about his impending death, and she believed him. Her self-giving compassion made her more human than would the deeds of almsgiving that the other disciples had urged her to do. And so I wondered, well, where did her compassion come from? wonder if she reflected back on the love that her own Savior had shown her, because he was with her right there at her brother's grave. John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus loved Mary 
and Martha. And he was there in their deepest sorrow. He raised her brother from the dead. He declared his resurrection power to her and to Martha. He foreshadowed with this his own resurrection that defeats death for all time and gives to us life immortal. The summer that I graduated from high school, I was baptized in the Yellow Breaches Creek, which is on the campus of Messiah College. Our church held a yearly baptismal service there in August, not February. In my testimony, I used this story of Mary as my life parable, that I might pour out my gifts, my heart to my Savior, I am sure that God smiled in my exuberant naivete. There were so many times since that I have clung to myself. So few times that I have poured out myself as Mary did. But I think I was drawn to this story because of my experience of God's overwhelming love that was shown to me. Moments of such joy... Remember, I was in high school at the time, which is just a series of drama and disappointments one after another, right? God's love for me, Jesus' love poured out on me, surrounding me. I think that's what Mary felt and was responding to. God's love does not encourage us to be passive. I'm, I think these scripture passages ask us to be alert to our actions. Think about these scriptures then and how you are being called to live out your life faithfully. For some of you, you have been or you are marginalized. Your worship of Christ might include standing up against traditional expectations of the culture, much as Samuel did in acting on God's choice. And it might be your act of worship to be prophetic as Mary was even when your brothers in Christ mock your actions. And if your worship of Christ turns out to be like Peter's or James or John, who promised Jesus they would stay with him and failed to do so, well, we can ask forgiveness. We apologize and we can embrace the forgiveness of God who promises to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus notes that there will be those who say to him, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will answer, depart from me, I I don't know you. Who are you? We can't take this question lightly, especially in an age that is so interested in defining self-identity. Giving to the poor, healing the sick, raising the dead, These good deeds have the danger that we would answer the question, who am I, with the answer, myself. Or we would even ask the wrong question, what am I? The question scripture leads us to ask, who am I? And then scripture invites us with this answer, 
Paul said this both to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, that we take off the old self and we put on Christ. Put on the one whose love is unfathomable, unmeasurable. Who am I? Jesus answers, you are my beloved. I heard about him, I heard about his style, how he spoke to all who approached him, in him there was no guile. I went to see him, was told he could explain the mysteries of God and life, make the complicated plain. For I needed to know the greatest commandment of all to follow. I am a scribe, a lover of God's law. It is my life, it is my love, it is my all in all. As I have studied, I believe and be a higher understanding that it can set me free. Yes, I want to know the greatest commandment of all to follow. He told the crowd his stories, they heard everything he said, of the owner's son paying Caesar's tax, the resurrection of the dead. The leaders tried to trap him, they could not make him fall. He took on every issue, and he answered them all. Then I asked, to know the greatest commandment of all to follow. Hear, O Israel, he said, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And just as you love yourself, your neighbor you must love. In greatness there is no command which can be placed above. And then I knew... This man, his words, and his life were true. 
And he told me that I was not far from God's kingdom.